Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap, hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today's our Pali Canon in English study group, where we study the words of the Buddha in a volume of books that will share the words of the Buddha. There's 13 volumes total, and we're studying volumes 2 through 13. Today's our last day in this particular book, which is chapters 41 through 51. And the way that this program works is these books are downloadable. You can acquire them through just downloading them to any kind of electronic device that you have. You can then take those out and print them if you would prefer a printed version, or you can order them on Amazon and be able to get a nice quality printing if you like. And then students read them all throughout the world and come together on Saturdays in order to discuss them. So together, we're going to be sharing these teachings on the screen so that we can all study them together. We've got students that are in Zoom, Facebook, YouTube, and other parts throughout the internet world where we're distributing this content. And we'll just study these teachings together to help you understand what the Buddha actually taught related to the path to enlightenment. Then next week, we're going to be moving into volume three, which is the next volume. Volume three is also available in those same ways by going to buddhadailywisdom.com, clicking on the button for free books, and you can download it there. You can print it or acquire a version through Amazon. And then if you read chapters one through 10, next Saturday, we'll be discussing those. But if you're joining us for the first time and you haven't read, it's okay because we're going to actually read each of these chapters today in class and then study them in order to help you gain insight from the wisdom of Gautama Buddha as he shared his teachings over 2,500 years ago. The way that we start this class is with just a brief little meditation to help the mind create some clarity and some focus so that then as we study, you'll be able to retain the teachings for longer periods of time because retaining the teachings then allows you to reflect on them and allows you to practice them in order to experience the results with changing the condition of the mind. Because remember, this path to enlightenment, there's a certain aspect to it that's an intellectual journey that you need to learn intellectually but just learning intellectually isn't actually going to create enlightenment. You need to be able to reflect on the teachings and practice them. And that's where the condition of the mind actually improves when you start practicing what the Buddha actually taught. So we'll start out with our brief meditation and then move right into chapter 41. 
So thank you all for joining. Appreciate that you're here with your interest to learn and practice the teachings of Gautama Buddha. If you'd like to take a meditation position of either seated, standing, or lying, we'll go ahead and start with breathing mindfulness meditation. So go ahead and make your lower body comfortable, your hands and arms as well, and keep your upper body erect so that it keeps the mind attentive and alert. Next, close the eyes, start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Just develop a nice natural breath. Breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Breathing in and out. I'm going to do some chanting to ease us into meditation. You're welcome to join if you like. Okay, you should be breathing in through the nose 
and out through the nose. As you're breathing in, focus the mind on the breath, the sound of the breath, or the sensation of air moving over the skin into the nose. This is the present moment. Focus the mind there. Breathing in and out. As the body's breathing out, continue to focus the mind on the breath, the present moment. The mind can be peaceful when it's in the present moment. As the mind wanders and you notice that, cut it off, let it go. Bring the mind back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in and out. I'm going to let you do this work of fixating the mind on the breath, cutting off and letting go any time the mind is not on the breath. Focus on the breath, breathing in, in, out.
short little meditation just to kind of help the mind a little bit here in our class the way that we do our classes here is people who are in zoom can volunteer to read a particular chapter in the book starting today with chapter 41 going all the way through to the end of the book and then after the student reads then I'll teach the chapter and then any questions that you guys have we can discuss them at that time so the way that you would ask questions is in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. You can put your question into the comment section. Our moderators, Nick and Bossom, will see that and make sure your question gets asked during the class. Or if you're in Zoom, you have the added ability to raise your hand electronically and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So let's go ahead and get started with our first chapter. Who's our first volunteer, uh, Bossom? Hello, uh, teacher. She's uh, Holly for chapter 41. Okay, perfect. So Holly from Alabama is going to be reading chapter 41 for us. Thank you, Holly. You're welcome. Okay, chapter 41, not understanding and not penetrating the fourth level truths. 
Monks, it is because of not understanding and not penetrating the four noble truths that you and I have roamed and wandered through this long course of the cycle of rebirth. What for? It is, monks, because of not understanding and not penetrating the noble truth of discontentedness that you and I have roamed and wandered through this long course of the cycle of rebirth. It is because of not understanding and not penetrating the noble truth of the cause of discontentedness that you and I have roamed and wandered through this long course of the cycle of rebirth. It is because of not understanding and not penetrating the noble truth of the elimination of discontentedness that you and I have roamed and wandered this long course of the cycle of rebirth. It is because of not understanding and not penetrating the noble truth of the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness that you and I have roamed and wandered through this long course of the cycle of rebirth. All right, perfect. So here in this particular chapter, the Buddha is connecting the understanding of the Four Noble Truths to the cycle of rebirth. And as we understand is the Four Noble Truths is the very beginning, very foundation of all of his other teachings that learning and practicing the Four Noble Truths establishes what's called right view, that you understand through the Four Noble Truths that it's the mind's craving, desire, attachment that causes discontentedness. And the way to eliminate discontentedness in the mind is to eliminate the mind's craving, desire, attachment. And that's accomplished through the Eightfold Path, which is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness, that last, that fourth of the Four Noble Truths. So throughout this particular book, Volume 2, the Buddha has been helping us to see that it's the Four Noble Truths that is the real beginning of his teachings and pointing to those and pointing to the Eightfold Path repeatedly over and over and over again. And then here he's connecting that because the mind doesn't understand that craving, desire, attachment is the cause of discontentedness and then how to eliminate that. And the mind isn't enlightened because it hasn't completely eliminated discontentedness. That's why beings keep cycling through, keep roaming and wandering through this cycle of rebirth. In later chapters, he expands this further, but this is kind of like one of the places in this particular book where he really connects one of his very beginning teachings to the cycle of rebirth and continuous rebirth. And the goal would be to attain enlightenment through his teachings and then no longer experience rebirth in the cycle of rebirth any longer. Any questions on this chapter? Okay. Pretty beginning stuff that you guys probably already understood from the group learning program and from some of the other chapters that we've read. All right, so moving on to chapter 42. The mind has attained the end of craving. Through the round of many births, I roam without reward, without rest, seeking the house builder. Painful is birth again and again. House builder, you're seen. You will not build the house again. All your raft is broken, the ridge pole dismantled, immersed in dismantling. The mind has attained to the end of craving. Okay. So here I would like to thank you, Miranda. I would like to just point out the reference here. You guys have seen the different references for each individual chapter. Whenever you see DHP, this stands for Dhammapada. There's very few chapters in this whole book series that are from the Dhammapada. The Dhammapada is a scholarly work that was done about 1,000 to 1,200 years after the death of the Buddha, 
where scholars basically tried to summarize his teachings in kind of almost like a poetic verse nature. And that's why you see here this particular teaching is a little bit more poetic and kind of like a little bit more challenging to see what's the real takeaway here. So it's not considered, in my view, the actual words of the Buddha, although other people do consider them to be the words of the Buddha. These are summarization and almost kind of like a little bit of poetry in some cases. There's very, very few of these throughout this particular book series, but there's a few of them that are quite interesting, and that's why they show up here, where we will look at these. But people who are really deeply into the Pali Canon uh, will typically just look at what's called the sutras or the discourses. The Dhammapada is part of the Pali Canon, and what we refer to as the Pali Canon, but it's not the spoken discourses or the sutras from the Buddha. So here, what the scholars are summarizing the Buddha's words to be is talking about this cycle of rebirth, is going around, roaming around without reward, without rest, continuing to seek to build this house. The house is the physical body, seeking to build existence and create existence. And of course, painful is birth. Have you ever seen a baby that came out of its mom laughing and joking and so joyful to be here? No, babies come out crying, right? There's that attachment, that craving desire attachment to that cozy womb inside the mother. There's all that fluid. There's all that warmth. It's so comfortable in there. They don't have to do anything. We just get fed. You know, we don't even have to go out for our food. It gets brought in through the umbilical cord. Wow, like life couldn't be better inside the womb of our mom's stomach, right? But as soon as that baby is taken out of the womb or it, it comes out of the womb through natural childbirth, wah, wah, wah. why? Because of the craving desire attachment to the womb, right? So there's that craving that is the cause of rebirth and the fuel that causes rebirth. And right away when birth happens, it's painful. Now, we tend to look at it as a joyful experience that there's a new life that's coming to the world. But if you ask the person who's giving birth, it's quite painful to give birth. And if a infant could actually talk, it's, I'm sure, quite painful to go through the birthing canal or be pulled out by a doctor in a C-section. And continuous rebirth creates discontentedness where now there's a new being in the world that's going to experience discontentedness again and again and again until we discover these teachings and attain enlightenment. So that's where here, house builder, you've been seen, right? So I understand craving, desire, attachment. You're the reason why this house keeps being built. You're the reason why existence keeps happening over and over again. You've been seen craving, desire, attachment. We know it's you that's causing this house to be built over and over again. You will not build a house again. So if you eliminate craving, desire, attachment in this existence, there will be no more existences in the cycle of rebirth. So you will not build a house again. You craving, desire, attachment, you will not lead to another rebirth. All your rafters broken. So craving, desire, attachment having been eliminated, all the rafters that support this house and create this house has been broken, the ridge pole dismantled, right? Immersed in dismantling, breaking down, eliminating this craving, desire, attachment. 
so that there can no longer be any more rebirth. And then the last line here, the mind has attained to the end of craving. So by ending craving, we eliminate the rebuilding of this existence and continuous existence of roaming without reward, roaming without rest. And you can probably relate to that without rest part for sure, because when the mind has so much craving, you just feel like you're on the go. Just go, 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 go all the time. You can never get enough completed and you can never get enough rest. The mind is just constantly on the go, 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 go. But when you eliminate the craving, then the mind can finally have peace. It can finally have calm. It can finally rest because it's no longer just constantly pursuing with a strong eagerness, that yearning, that longing. And that's how you end this whole process of the cycle of rebirth. So any questions here on this chapter? All right, it looks like no questions here. So we'll move on to chapter 43. And turn Donnie for 43. Okay. In this fathom long body, I say, friend, that by traveling, one cannot know, see, or reach that end of the world where one is not born, does not grow old and die, does not pass away and get reborn. Yet I say that without having reached the end of the world, there is no making an end of discontentedness. It is in this fathom-long body endowed with perception and mind that I proclaim the world, the origin of the world, the elimination of the world, and the way leading to the elimination of the world. Okay, thanks, Johnny. So here, the Buddha is kind of retelling the Four Noble Truths. He's pointing to the Four Noble Truths here, but rather than use the word discontentedness, he's using the word world. So here, what he's saying is, I say, friend, that by traveling, one cannot know, see, or reach the end of discontentedness. Okay, it says the end of the world, but it's discontentedness. The end of this cycle of rebirth cannot come about by just traveling around the world where one is not born, does not grow old, and does not die. So we can't end this cycle of rebirth by just traveling around, right? So I say, friend, that by traveling, one cannot know, see, or reach the end of the world where one is not born does not grow old and die, does not pass away and get reborn. So it's not by just traveling around and seeing the world that this comes about. Yet I say that without having reached the end of the world, there is no making an end of discontentedness. So you have to be able to see this path to enlightenment. You have to be able to see it clearly in order to make an end to this discontentedness, not by traveling necessarily physically around the world, but by being able to see the natural laws of existence of the world is what will help you to understand and how to make an end to this discontentedness. It is in this fathom long body. This fathom is essentially a unit of measurement They use different units of measurements during the lifetime of the Buddha. So a fathom is essentially six feet or 1.8 meters. That's what a fathom is. So it sounds like the Buddha must have been about six feet tall. That's what this alludes to. So it is in this fathom long body endowed with perception and mind that I proclaim the world. So he's proclaiming what is discontentedness. 
the origin or the cause of discontentedness, the elimination of discontentedness, and the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. He's not necessarily predicting the end of the world because he left this as an undeclared teaching. But here he's essentially kind of recasting his typical use of the word discontentedness through using this word, the world. Any questions on this chapter? Go right, The perfectly enlightened one's complexion is no longer pure and bright. The limbs are all flaccid and wrinkled. Then the venerable Ananda approached the perfectly enlightened one, having approached and paid homage respect while massaging the perfectly enlightened one's limbs, he said to him, it is wonderful, venerable sir. It is amazing, venerable sir. The perfectly enlightened one's complexion is no longer pure and bright. His limbs are all flaccid, soft, and hanging loosely, and wrinkled. His body is stooped. Some alteration is seen in his sense bases, in the eye sense base, the ear sense base, the nose sense base, the tongue sense base, the body sense base. So it is, Ananda. In youth, one is subject to aging. In health, one is subject to illness. While alive, one is subject to death. The complexion is no longer pure and bright. The limbs are all flaccid and wrinkled. The body is stooped. And some alteration is seen in the sense bases, in the eye sense base, the ear sense base, the nose sense base, the tongue sense base, the body sense base. This is what the perfectly enlightened one said. Having said this, the fortunate one, the teacher, further said this, fie on you, wretched aging, aging which makes beauty fade, so much has the charming puppet been crushed beneath advancing age. One who might live a hundred years also has death as destination. Death spares none along the way, but comes crushing everything. Okay, thank you, Miranda. So what we're getting into here in these chapters is we're, we're building up to the point where we get to the Buddha's last words and his actual death. So here you can see this particular teaching that he shared was towards the end of his life when he was getting old. And the body was starting to be pretty decrepit, it sounds like, or at least it was. It didn't have its youthfulness as it did at one time. But what you notice here in this teaching is they talk about the sense spaces, that there's a deterioration of the sense spaces, right? The eye sense base, the ear sense base, the nose sense base, the tongue in the body. But notice that there's no mention of any deterioration of the mind. That's that sixth sense base. So for an enlightened being, as they age, having done all the work earlier in their life, the Buddha having attained enlightenment at age 35, the mind was crisp and sharp and had this wisdom even as he aged and near death. But the eyes are going to be blurry and not see as much or as crisp and clear as they do younger in life. The ears aren't going to be able to hear as well. The nose won't smell as well. The tongue won't taste as well. The sensations of the body touching physical objects won't be as sensitive. So these are things that you can understand from this particular teaching that a person who attains enlightenment is going to maintain that crispness and sharpness of their mind even in old age. We tend to think that a deterioration of the mind is kind of commonplace for someone who gets old. And it is if the mind is still polluted, if the mind hasn't attained enlightenment. But for someone who's attained enlightenment, you see that's not the case. The Buddha still taught 
very crisp and very clear all the way towards the end of his life. And then he goes on further here, you know, he's essentially talking about impermanence, how one who is young is subject to aging, one who is in health is subject to illness, while alive one is subject to death. So all of this is pointing to impermanence, which is one of his core and standard teachings. And then he goes into a bit of poetry himself, his own words. There are certain times where the Buddha actually did kind of speak a little bit in poetic terms, even when he spoke himself. And here, this is where he says, you know, fie on you, wretched age, aging, aging which makes beauty fade. So much has the charming puppet been crushed beneath advancing age, right? So all this youthfulness is gone. One who might live a hundred years. So even someone who lives really long also has death as their destination. They're still going to die. Every single being that is alive today is going to die at some point. That's the universal truth of impermanence. Death spares none along the way, but comes crushing everything. Right. So it gets very clear there. The Buddha doesn't really insert any kind of erroneous words. He just makes it very, very clear what he's teaching there. Any questions on this particular chapter? All right, so let's go to the next one, which is chapter 45, the Tathagata's final passing, which is essentially leading up, like I said, to his death. Okay, teacher, uh, I'm going to have to read this. Hopefully the connectivity is okay. Okay. Uh, and then Boston will take over um, vocalizing Zoom. But uh, let me give this an attempt and we'll see how it goes. Sounds good. The Tathagata final passing. Monks, for this reason, those matters which I have discovered and proclaimed should be thoroughly learned by you, practiced, developed, and cultivated, so that this holy life may endure for a long time. That may be for the benefit and peacefulness of the multitude, out of compassion for the world for the benefit and peacefulness of heavenly beings and humans. And what matters? They are the four foundations of months, the four efforts, the four bases of mental power, the five spiritual faculties, the five mental powers, the seven factors of enlightenment, the noble path. And now, monks, I declare to you, all conditioned things are in nature to decay. Strive on integrity. The Tagata's final passing will not be long delayed. Three months from now, the Tagata will take his final dhana. Right by in years, my life spans to determine. Now I go from you, having made myself my refuge. Monks, be untiring, mindful, disciplined, guarding your minds with well-collected thought. He who tirelessly keeps to the guidance and teachings, leaving birth behind will an end to sorrow and despair. Okay, we got most of that, Nick. So here, this is a discourse or a teaching that the Buddha delivered three months prior to his death. So he knew three months prior to his death when he was going to actually die. And he was letting people know because 
if you can imagine, there would have been countless people who were enlightened during his lifetime and nearing his death, but there were surely people who were studying that were not yet enlightened. And there were, I'm sure, people who were attached to the Buddha himself. Out of compassion for those people, giving them a heads up that he's going to be dying in three months would kind of help them to gradually start letting go of their attachment and also give them a chance to ask any final questions that they might have or things that they're unclear of before he actually dies. So out of compassion for his students, giving them a heads up that he was about to die was a very wise thing to do. And then likewise, what he also delivers in this discourse is he shares the things that he feels are foundational to learning and practicing the teachings to attain enlightenment. Here, he shares what he feels are the most important teachings to be learned and practiced. There's another place where I expand this and I explain exactly what these things are. Of course, you've probably already had exposure to the four foundations of mindfulness and the four right efforts. Those are the four right strivings, right? In the Eightfold Path of Right Effort. The four bases of mental power and the five spiritual faculties, the five mental powers, these are things that you learn as part of all the other teachings, but there are specific things that I've put in other parts of the book series. And what I'll probably do now that I realize they're not here is I will probably pull those in and put those in here. Actually, you know what? I know why I didn't put them in here because these are so close to the Buddha's last words I wasn't interested in inserting any other words with parentheses, so I left it out here. But you'll see in other parts of the book series where he references these same things, and I put in parentheses what these things are. But there's nothing that you have to physically go out and learn the four bases of mental power, the five spiritual faculties, or the five mental powers, because these are all just kind of a regrouping of things that he teaches in other places. So just keep that in mind. The seven factors of enlightenment, of course, you've already had exposure to, and the Eightfold Path is, of course, something that's taught. So these are what the Buddha is saying are, you know, really pay extra close attention to these particular teachings. And then he shares discussion about impermanence, sharing impermanence, that, you know, he's impermanent himself this physical body is a nature to decay strive on untiringly you know don't give up don't become complacent don't ever give up keep going forward to work on attaining enlightenment letting people know that he's going to be dying in three months and that's what we call final nibbana once somebody's attained enlightenment during their life they've obtained enlightenment or they've attained nibbana but we call it final nibbana once the body physically dies and the mind separates. Because during the lifetime as someone's in existence, you can reach enlightenment and get to the point where there's no longer any mental pain. All mental pain or painful feelings has been eliminated. But there's still going to be a certain amount of physical pain. And that's there for a reason. You can't extinguish that 100%. So if you were enlightened and you were standing too close to a fire, you're going to feel the heat. And that triggers the mind and tells the mind, hey, move away. The physical body is, is going to experience pain if you continue to stand next to this fire. And in that situation, 
the physical body and the mind has done what it's intended, even though it's enlightened, it's experienced that heated sensation of the fire, and then the person chooses to step away from the fire. Then once the person actually dies, that's enlightened, now the mind and the body separate and the mind no longer experiences even that physical pain any longer. But when an enlightened being experiences pain, they experience it very differently than in the unenlightened state. In the unenlightened state, when there's physical pain that happens, there's typically emotional pain or mental pain that associates with that. So if you stumped your toe or you hit your hand or thumb with a hammer, you would feel that physical pain and then the mind might immediately go into mental pain where maybe you start cussing, you start complaining, you start being agitated, angered, frustrated, irritated. And sometimes this leads to even more pain that we hit our thumb with the hammer, we get angry, we throw the hammer up in the air and it comes down and hits us on the head, right? So by maintaining your composure and your calmness, even when there's physical pain, the mind can then continue to make wise decisions and not lead to further pain. So in the unenlightened state, we experience physical pain and then we also typically will experience mental pain or painful feelings associated with that where the mind will become angered, frustrated, irritated, sad, or some other feeling associated with that, maybe even fear. In the enlightened mental state, an enlightened being will experience the physical pain. They will know that the body is in physical pain, but there won't be any anger, frustration, irritation, sadness, fear, any of these kind of things associated with the physical pain. So that's why we call it final nibbana or final enlightenment. And I explain this in a later book, I believe it's volume six or seven, where I explained it in a lot of detail for you guys there in written format. So here the Buddha's saying, you know, ripen years, right? He's really old. His lifespan's determined. He knows when he's going to die. And ultimately he ends up dying at the age of 80. You know, now I go from you having made myself my refuge. So I'm leaving but he's made the teachings. He's made his own, his own mind, his refuge. The teachings protected the mind. So now he's escaped this whole cycle of rebirth. So he explains to the monks and encourages them, you know, be untiring, you know, continue, don't be complacent, be mindful, awareness of mind, be disciplined, you know, really be determined, dedicated, diligent, you know, guard your minds with collected thought, with wisdom, with mental discipline, protecting and guarding those doorways to discontentedness. He who is tireless, so he who never gives up, keeps to the guidance of the teachings, will leave birth behind, right? Will put an end to sorrow and despair. So by ending discontentedness, you will no longer be born again. So by attaining enlightenment, there will be no more existences in the cycle of rebirth. In this particular reference here, DN16, this captures the whole sequence of events prior to the Buddha's death. So anytime you see any teachings around the time of the death of the Buddha, it will typically be referenced to DN16, where you can actually go look at all the teachings right around the time of his death. Any questions on this one? No questions for this one, teacher. Okay, chapter 46.
One who sees the teachings sees me. Enough, Vakili. Why do you want to see this foul body? One who sees the teachings sees me. One who sees me sees the teachings. For in seeing the teachings, Vakali, one sees me. And in seeing me, one sees the teachings. Monks, even if a monk taking hold of my outer robe were to follow right behind me, placing his feet in my footsteps, yet if he were to be craving for sensual pleasure, strong in his passions, evil in mind, corrupt in his decision-making, his mindfulness muddled, unalert, uncentered, his mind scattered, and his sense bases uncontrolled, then he would be far from me, and I am from him. Why is that? Because he doesn't see the teachings. Not seeing the teachings, he does not see me. But even if a monk were to live 100 leagues away, yet if he were to, to have no craving for sensual objects, were not strong in his passions, not evil in mind, uncorrupt in his decision-making, his mindfulness established, alert, centered, his mind at singleness, and his sense basis well restrained, then he would be near to me and I to him. Why is that? Because he sees the teachings, seeing the teachings, he sees me. Okay, thank you, Basim. So here, the way that I understand this particular teaching was delivered is that once the Buddha alerted people that he would be dying in three months, there was a particular individual who was crying and upset. And imagine there was others as well. And they were really attached to the Buddha and kind of almost pleading with him not to die. But of course, you know, he can't control that. So this is where the Buddha says, you know, why do you want to see this foul body? Why do you need this body? Essentially, he's delivered for 45 years. He delivered all these teachings and there's all these enlightened beings. You know, why do you need the physical body? Because you have the teachings and that's what you need. You don't need to hold on to your teacher, to the physical body of your teacher. So one who sees the teaching sees me. So if somebody learns the teachings deeply and they understand the teachings, because the Buddha taught the natural laws of existence, you will see the Buddha everywhere around you. So every time impermanence happens, like Nick having an internet connection that's a little bit spotty, ah, there's the Buddha, right? Not Nick, but there's his teaching. So, you know, one who sees the teaching sees me. Or if you observe craving, causing discontentedness in the mind, and you know that anger that arose in the mind is because of craving. If you understand the teachings of the Buddha, aha, you understand the teachings. There you see the Buddha. Or you practice loving kindness and compassion, and you see how that produces wholesome outcomes for you. Ah, you see the Buddha. Or you see somebody else practicing generosity, and that makes you feel joyful, and you see the joy through practicing generosity. Ah, you see the Buddha. Or you start practicing right speech, and you see your relationships improve because of practicing right speech. Ah, you see the Buddha because you see the teachings, right? So for someone who deeply understands the teachings, you're going to see the Buddha everywhere around you 
as these teachings work to improve the condition of the mind and the condition of your life more and more. And one who sees me sees the teachings. So this is basically like he's living the example of the teachings. He practices what he preaches. He's a living, breathing, walking example of his teachings. He doesn't teach right speech and then practice wrong speech. He doesn't teach generosity and then practice selfishness. He doesn't teach loving kindness and then he's got hate and anger in his mind, right? Those are opposites. And there's many of those things that we could come up with. What he says is one who sees me sees the teachings. So if you see him, if you see a Buddha in the flesh, they're a living, walking, breathing example of their teachings. That's one who sees me sees the teachings. So then he goes on and kind of illuminates that more, right? He goes through some of his teachings a little bit more close. If he says, if someone were practicing in this way, where they were craving central pleasures, strong in their passions, evil in mind, corrupt in decision-making, mindfulness muddled, so their mind is muddled, unalert, uncentered, scattered, their sense bases are uncontrolled, meaning they're craving through their senses, then he would be far from me because that person doesn't understand the teachings and they're not really practicing them, right? But somebody who has the opposite of that, someone who is not craving central objects, who's not strong in their passions, who's not evil in mind, who's uncorrupt in their decision makings, who's has mindfulness well-established, alert, centered, singleness of mind, and his sense bases are well restrained, then this person is close to the Buddha because they deeply understand the teachings and they're practicing them. So that's what this one is discussing. So the more you learn his teachings, you will see him everywhere. And that's why you don't need to believe that this man existed. The more that you learn his teachings and see the truth in his teachings everywhere around you, you will know for sure that he lived and you don't have to believe that he existed as the mind eliminates more and more discontentedness and you get to enlightenment you'll know for sure aha this man lived for sure there's no belief here whatsoever so that's chapter 46 what questions do you guys have on this chapter i don't see any uh, questions for this one sure okay so let's move on to chapter 47 Yes, uh, this one goes to uh, Holly. One who resides in the teachings. Here, a monk learns the teachings, the discourses, mixed prose and verse, explanations, verses, inspired spoken phrases, quotations, birth stories, amazing accounts, and question and answer. But he does not pass the day solely in learning the teachings. He does not neglect seclusion, but devotes himself to internal serenity of mind. It is in this way that a monk is one who resides in the teachings. Thus, monk, I have taught the one absorbed in learning, the one absorbed in communication, the one absorbed in recitation, the one absorbed in thought, and the one who resides in the teachings. Whatever should be done, monks, by a compassionate teacher out of the compassion for his disciples, aspiring for their welfare that I have done for you. These are the feet of trees. Monks, these are empty huts. 
Meditate, monks. Do not be complacent, lest you regret it, regret it later. This is my instruction to you. Okay, thank you. So here, the Buddha is talking about how he essentially taught, right? So as he taught, students were tasked with memorizing the teachings word for word for word, and then being able to recall those and actually recite them. They would oftentimes uh, recite the teachings throughout the month. There was kind of like, I think uh, every two weeks, there was a particular time when people would come together and they would recite the discourses over and over and over again as part of their practice. And then when they were away, they would go into seclusion and they would learn the teachings. They would discuss them with each other. They would practice the teachings. And where they were invited, they would actually share the teachings with householders too. So the Buddha is explaining here that not only is it important that somebody learn the teachings and reside in the teachings, but they also take time for seclusion and being alone and devoting their time to gaining that inner serenity of mind. One of the things that we tend to do in life today, because we have our life filled with so many electronic devices, so many activities, so many hobbies, so many things like shopping and activities, we tend to fill our day with all kinds of stuff. We don't actually set aside time to just be alone. And that's really important for a mind that's on the way to enlightenment and practicing towards enlightenment is that you spend time alone so that you can think and you can contemplate not only the teachings, but things that are going on in your life so that you can arrive to really wise decisions that are going to make a real difference in your life. So to be able to reside in the teachings, the Buddha is saying, you know, not only should you learn the teachings themselves, but you should also spend some time alone, devoting time to this inner serenity and kind of thinking through or reflecting on the teachings as well. So that's where he also says here, I have taught the one absorbed in learning. You know, so this is one person absorbed in learning. I've taught one absorbed in communication, you know, kind of sharing the teachings and communicating them. One absorbed in recitation, reciting the teachings over and over and over again. The one absorbed in thought, who's just constantly thinking over and over and over and over. And the one who resides in the teachings, right? So it's important to not just do one of these things, but to be able to do all of these things. Right. And then here this sentence shows us why the Buddha actually taught is that, you know, what should be done, monks, by a compassionate teacher out of compassion for his disciples, aspiring for their welfare, that I have done for you. Right. So he had this concern for the misfortune of others. So oftentimes when a teacher teaches and when they do things, a student doesn't always know why the teacher is doing what they're doing, but a teacher who's reached enlightenment and is sharing the teachings with others, they're only doing so out of the benefit for others because they've already attained enlightenment. There's no benefit that's coming to them through way of sharing the teachings. They're just making themselves available for others. But oftentimes students don't necessarily understand why a teacher does what they do, but they're always operating through compassion. So let me give you an example. If I've been instructing a certain student and they've been coming to me for a lot of guidance and it's been many months that they've been learning and over the course of those months, I'm noticing that 
they're starting to become complacent and they're maybe kind of relying on me for input and they're just always asking questions without having first done the thought of investigating the resources like books or classes where they haven't done the reflection or they haven't practiced. It's just a barrage of question after question. Now, I think all questions are wonderful, but there's certain times where there's observation where someone might just be tossing out questions without having really put thought behind the questions that they are asking. Well, in that situation, rather than a teacher just continuing to give the answer and give the answer and give the answer and continue to do the work for the student, instead, what a teacher might do is direct the student to the book or direct the student to the podcast or the YouTube video or some other resource because they know that over the six month period of time that they've been working with that student, the student has become complacent. One of the aspects of teaching is to know the mind of your students and where a teacher observes that a student is maybe not practicing that enlightenment factor of investigation, a teacher might start getting to the point where they stop answering a question for a student and then direct them to the resource because they're looking to help that student to start practicing the enlightenment factor of investigation. And the student might be confused, like, why isn't this teacher giving me the answer to the question? I'm asking the question, just give me the answer, give me the answer, give me the answer. But what the teacher is doing is trying to support and encourage and motivate the student to stand on their own two feet and practice the enlightenment factor of investigation, as well as in practice the enlightenment factor of energy, where they're motivated and encouraged to actually dig into the resources. Because if they're just relying on their teacher to just give the answer all the time, then they're not doing the work. And if they're not doing the work, they're not going to get to enlightenment. So I imagine during the lifetime of the Buddha that there were certain questions the students might have had, like, why isn't the teacher answering my question? You know, why is he just telling me to go think about it? Or why is he suggesting to me to go meditate? Why don't he just give me the answer? So here, I think the Buddha makes it very clear that he aspired for the welfare of all of his students and he had compassion for all of them. And everything that he did, every word that he uttered, every action that he took was all about helping the students out of compassion for them and a concern for their welfare. And that's why he did the things that he did. And then, of course, here at the end, he encourages and motivates us to continue to meditate and not be complacent and continue to move forward in our practice through meditation. What questions do you guys have on this one? We have uh, two questions on Facebook, but uh, they are on previous chapters, so maybe we can delete them to the end of the class. Now we have uh, Holly and Brenda has your hands raised. Let's go to Holly. Um, my question, I thought was in the in your comments for this chapter, but I just looked at it and it's not in the comments for the, in your in your extra writings. Um, but I'm going to ask it anyway. I remember reading where you said it wasn't necessary for us to memorize parts of the teaching because we have it available in digital form or in written form, whereas the students of the Buddha did not have that, so they had to memorize it. 
Um, and uh, my question is, is do you feel like, even though it's not necessary, do you feel like it would be advantageous to memorize parts of the teachings now? I think memorization of the teachings doesn't have as much value as it did during the lifetime of the Buddha. During the lifetime of the Buddha, there was really no other way. Nowadays, what's most important is that you understand the teachings. And the more that you read them, the more that you might actually kind of start memorizing them. Not that you have to go recite them somewhere, but that you'll internalize the teachings and you'll understand them. So like these chapters that we're looking at this week, you know, I've probably looked at these probably 10, 20 different times. I don't have them memorized word for word. And I will typically read the chapters before class, maybe like a day or two before class, I will kind of refresh my memory about the chapters so that I'm prepared to talk about them with you guys. But I don't remember them word for word. But when I read them, I recall, you know, what the understanding I have of these teachings. So I don't think it's important that you remember to the point that you can recall them word for word, but that you have an understanding of what the Buddha is communicating with these so that then you can apply it to your life. Right. So memorizing the steps to the Eightfold Path and memorizing like the high level teachings, um, that would be good just so we can always recall it. Yes, I agree with that. So like the three universal truths, you should be able to know those and be able to explain those in detail. The Eightfold Path, you should be able to know all the steps and be able to explain them. The five precepts, you should know all of those and be able to explain them. Then moving into like the five aggregates, which we've touched on a little bit in this book, but as we go forward in future books, we'll get into the five aggregates more. You should know what the five aggregates are and be able to explain those. So there are certain things like that, that yes, I agree that you need to have a very good recall of what they are and be able to explain them. But in terms of reciting them word for word, the way that the Buddha explained them, you don't necessarily need that. But you'll need to have what you're talking about, that high level understanding of these very key teachings. And by the way, the reason why that's important, Holly, is that you'll be interested to recall those teachings in your daily life. So if you're out shopping or you're at your son's school and something happens and you need to grab a tool out of your tool belt in order to talk to a principal of a school or a teacher or a cashier at a store or something, and you recall that, for example, loving kindness antidotes hatred and anger, and you feel a little bit of anger arising, then if you can recall, ah, loving kindness, and you pull that out of your tool belt and start practicing loving kindness, that's where having that understanding of the Buddhist teachings really comes to aid you and help you that you don't have to be like, uh, principal, can you hold on for a second? I'm feeling some anger here. Let me see what I need to do to antidote that and get rid of that. Um, Oh, loving kindness. Oh, okay, let me be loving and kind to you. So if you soak these teachings into the mind and you deeply penetrate them into the mind, then you'll be able to invoke the various teachings when you need them in daily life. That's the reason why deeply soaking them into the mind becomes useful. So I think Miranda's next. 
Yes, sir. Hello. Um, what is meant by uh, these are the feet of trees, monks? These are empty huts, if anything. Sure. So whenever the Buddha talks about meditation, he always directs his students to go to the foot of a tree. In his view, it seems like based on everything that you see him talking about with meditation, he felt that meditating at the trunk of a tree, at the, at the foot of a tree, was the ideal place to meditate. Because I'm sure during their lifetime, you know, there were certain cities or towns that they taught in. And there was like, I think, two temples that they had built during his lifetime that he kind of moved between during his lifetime but he also taught in different towns and villages and in people's houses so there wasn't like a plethora of places to go meditate like today there's temples everywhere there's meditation centers everywhere even in airports i see like meditation rooms nowadays where during the lifetime of the buddha where would you go to meditate well go in the forest in the forest during the lifetime of the Buddha, there was, you know, quite a few more wild animals than there are today. And I imagine not too many people really ventured into the forest during the lifetime of the Buddha. And that was the place where you could get seclusion because people were afraid to go there, except for people like monks or ordained practitioners who were practicing to not have fear. So it seems like based on all of his teachings that he viewed the foot of a tree as being the ideal place to meditate. And then he'll oftentimes follow it up with this one too, where he says empty huts as well. So, you know, in today's time, we call these gutis, where at a particular temple, they'll sometimes off in the distance or in the forest around the temple, they'll have these little bamboo huts or they'll have these little mosquito nets that are just enough to kind of go underneath of them and you can meditate there. And this would be the ideal place to potentially meditate. But then also you shouldn't avoid meditating in other places too because after you meditate in places like this where maybe there's more silence other than the noise of the animals in the forest, it actually is helpful to go into some populated environments and train the mind to meditate there too so that the mind doesn't get attached to the solitude of something like the forest so what i always suggest is that you kind of build up your practice for a couple of months in one particular place that the mind feels comfortable meditating in and then once you've kind of got your practice established kind of move the mind around into different locations in order to train it to not be attached to this one place to meditate yes okay sir thank you you're welcome well the next volunteer is uh, Nick for chapter 48 okay teacher is there a try yeah go for it yeah it it broke up uh, all right thank you but you know we'll, we'll we'll see what we can get it's a good lesson in impermanence and not allowing any kind of sound to disturb the mind all right, sir. Thank you, teacher. One who has attained Nibbana in this very life. Monk, if one teaches the teachings for the purpose of fading away, you have strong feelings toward teaching in death, for its fading away and elimination. One is fit to be called a monk who is speaker on the teachings. If one wants to fading away, a strong feelings towards Aging and death for its fading away and elimination. 
one is to be called a monk who is practicing accordance with the truth. If through fading away of strong feelings towards aging and death, through fading away and elimination, one is liberated by non one is fit to be called a monk who has attained nirvana in, in this very life. In the case of birth, existence, clinging, craving, feeling, contact, the sixth sense basis. Name and form, volitional formations, choices, decisions, and ignorance, the unknowing of true reality. The discourses are identical, except for the reference to each of the conditions of the dependent origination. Certain question I always forget, um, independent origination, um, I asked you before, and uh, I, I always forget what name and form translates. Yeah, so name and form, this is part of dependent origination, and this essentially relates to the physical form of the body. Name is the five aggregates with one change because form is extracted out and we put in contact. But we'll get to that when we get to volume five. Or if you have access to volume five, Nick, you can look there for what is name and form. The Buddha explains it in chapter 14 of volume five really clearly what is name and form. But it's essentially, um, the, it's essentially the five aggregates with contact. Okay. It actually makes more sense now that uh, I've actually been through the course of remembering now. Um, name is five aggregates in the forms of life. I, I got it. makes more sense now. Yeah, but look, look in chapter 14, volume 5. You'll see it there. All right. So the Buddha is talking about here, you know, one who's attained enlightenment. And he's talking about fading away of strong feelings towards aging and death. Right. So if a mind understands the universal truth of impermanence, then you wouldn't have strong feelings towards aging and death. You know, sometimes when we see hairs that are gray, we want to immediately pull the hair or we want to dye the hair because the mind's not comfortable with aging. Or if you see a wrinkle on the skin, the mind's not comfortable with that, right? Because the mind's not comfortable with aging. There's even a whole discipline now of plastic surgery to try to kind of revert some of the effects of aging that we have on the physical body. And the Buddha is saying here, you know, for one who understands these teachings, they won't have strong feelings towards aging and they won't have strong feelings towards death either because they'll understand death and they won't fear death. An enlightened being will no longer have any fear at all, including the fear of death. And he says, you know, one who teaches the teachings in this way for the fading away of elimination, elimination of discontentedness, is one who is called a monk who is a speaker on the teachings. So basically, someone who's speaking about the teachings, understanding the teachings, would understand that the whole goal of these teachings is to eliminate discontentedness, eliminate these strong feelings towards aging and death and discontentedness, which essentially relates to the dependent origination. You guys haven't learned that yet, but we will in this program. If one is practicing for the purpose, so not only teaching, but also practicing for the purpose of fading away of these strong feelings towards aging and death, 
and for the fading away of elimination, that's elimination of discontentedness, one is fit to be called a monk who is practicing in accordance with the teachings, because that's the whole goal of these teachings, right? And then through fading away of strong feelings towards aging and death, through its fading away and elimination, one is liberated. So if one is teaching, one is practicing, not that everyone that attains enlightenment has to teach, but he's just sharing that, you know, by accomplishing those, you're also going to be able to be liberated from non-clinging. The mind is not going to be holding on and causing discontentedness. One is fit to be called a monk who has attained enlightenment in this very life, right? So someone who has eliminated discontentedness will have attained enlightenment. And then here, this is just explaining that each individual aspect of dependent origination was discussed in the same way. So aging and death is one aspect of dependent origination. Dependent origination is 12 things that the Buddha discusses that leads from ignorance or unknowing of true reality all the way down to essentially birth, aging and death and discontentedness. And there's all these series of steps that one condition leads to the next. So it's ignorance or unknowing a true reality that leads to what we call volitional formations or choices and decisions. And then those choices and decisions lead towards consciousness. And then those consciousness, and it keeps on going all the way down this chain of events where the Buddha shows you very clearly that it's ignorance or unknowing of true reality that actually creates rebirth and then the conditions that exist for discontentedness. So the goal of his teachings is to eliminate each individual condition of dependent origination, with the number one condition being ignorance or unknowing of true reality. By eliminating that, you unravel and unwind all the other conditions that ultimately lead to birth and that ultimately lead to discontentedness. But you'll see that more clearly when we get to volume five. Questions on this chapter? No questions for the front teacher. All right. So it looks like we're on chapter 49. Yes. Let's go to Ellie. Three urgent tasks. Mong, there are these three urgent tasks of a farmer. What three? First, the farmer swiftly get thoroughly plow the field and swiftly yet thoroughly harrow it. Next, he swiftly sowed seeds and then he swiftly irrigate and drain the field. These are the three urgent tasks of a farmer. This farmer has no psychic potency or spiritual might by which he could connect. Let my crops start growing today. Let them mature tomorrow. Let them be a grain the day after tomorrow. But with the change of season, there comes a time when the crop grow mature and bear grain. So two, monk, these three urgent tasks of the monk. What three? The undertaking of the training in the higher virtuous behavior, moral conduct, the undertaking of the trainer in the higher mind, mental discipline, and the undertaking of trainer in the higher wisdom. 
these are the three urgent paths of a monk. This monk has no psychic potency of spiritual might by which could command, let my mind be liberated from the thing by non-clinging today or tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. Rather, as this monk trained in the higher virtuous behavior, moral conduct, higher mind, mental discipline, and higher wisdom, this come an occasion when this mind is liberated from the thing by non-clinging. All right. Thank you, Ali. This is a really great teaching for anyone who's craving enlightenment and they want it today, right now. <laughs> Come on, let's go. I, I need, I want to get enlightened, right? The Buddha is using this analogy of the farmer. And during his lifetime, he would have made analogies based on what the people understood. And during his lifetime, a lot of the people who studied with him understood farming because that's what was going on during the, that lifetime. So these three tasks that a farmer is going to perform is plow the field and harrow it. Harrowing it is like creating those lines down the middle of a field where ultimately the seeds get planted. So they're going to kind of plow the field and kind of formulate the earth into these nice rows, right? Then he's going to plant the seeds or she's going to plant the seeds and then they're going to irrigate it or water it and then drain the field. Those are the three things that a farmer is going to do, but yet the farmer doesn't have the ability, they don't have the psychic potency or the spiritual might to say, you know, let my crops grow today, let them mature tomorrow and let them bear grain the day after tomorrow, basically creating results right away. Even though they have the ability to prepare the fields, plant the fields and water them, they can't produce something right away, right? But with the change of seasons, so over time, there comes a time when the crops grow, mature, and bear grain. So it takes time to develop the field and have it to bear fruit or bear results. Likewise, the Buddha is explaining that as a practitioner on this path, there's three tasks. Training in this higher virtuous behavior, which is the moral conduct. That's the three steps of the Eightfold Path, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. The undertaking of training in the higher mind. This is the mental discipline of the Eightfold Path, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And then the undertaking of the training in higher wisdom. This is right view and right intention of the Eightfold Path, right? So these are the three urgent tasks of a student who's looking to attain enlightenment, is training in the Eightfold Path, right? Wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. But this student has no psychic potency or spiritual might that you could command, let this mind be liberated from the taints. That's those 10 fetters, because those are the, the pollutions of the mind that are hindering the mind from experiencing enlightenment. So even though you might know the Eightfold Path and you might have studied it and you're in the process of practicing it, you have no ability to command that the mind get rid of these taints or these 10 fetters and liberate it today or tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. But rather, you train in the higher virtuous behavior, the higher mind, the higher wisdom, and there comes an occasion 
when his mind is liberated from the taints by non-clinging. So gradual training. And the Buddha talks about gradual training and progress at other points in his teachings with a lot of clarity. Here he's alluding to it, but there's other places where he just says it outright that it's gradual training, gradual practice that leads to gradual progress. But here he's using a story and helping them see like you can't grow your crops in an instant. So why would you be able to attain enlightenment in an instant? It takes time, right? So this is a perfect teaching for anyone who's really craving enlightenment a lot. Questions on this chapter? Not really, sure. No questions for this one. All right. Chapter 50. Yes. The Tathagata resides compassionate towards all living beings. Venerable Seer, doesn't the perfectly enlightened one resides compassionate towards all living beings? Yes, Hidman. The Tathagata resides compassionate towards all living beings. Then why is it, Venerable Seer, that the perfectly enlightened one teaches the teachings thoroughly to some, yet not to thoroughly to others. Well, then, Hedman, I will question you about this. Answer as you see fit. What do you think, Hedman? Suppose a farmer here and the, here had three fields, one excellent, one of middling quality, and one inferior, rough, salty, with bad ground. What do you think, Hedman? If that farmer aspires to sow seed, where would he sow it first? In the excellent field, in the field of middling quality, or in the field that was inferior, the one that was rough, salty, with bad ground? If Venerable Sayer, that farmer aspires to sow seed, he would sow it in the excellent field. Having sown seed there, he would next sow seed in the field of middling quality. Having sown seed there, he might or might not sow seed in the field that was inferior, the one that was rough, salty, with bad ground. For what reason? Because at least it can be used as fodder for the cattle. Hidman, just like the field that is excellent, are the male and female ordained practitioners to me. I teach them the teachings that are good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. With the right meaning and phrasing, I reveal the holy life that is perfectly complete and pure. For what reason? Because they reside with me as their island, with me as their shelter, with me as their protector, with me as their refuge. Then headman, just like the field of middling quality are the male and female household practitioners to me. To them, I teach the teachings that are good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. With the right meaning and phrasing, I reveal the holy life that is perfectly complete and pure. For what reason? Because they reside with me as their island, as their shelter, with me as their protector, with me as their refuge. Then headman, just like that field that is inferior, rough, salty, with bad ground, 
are the ascetics, Brahmins, and wanderers of other communities to me. Yet to them too, I teach the teachings that are good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. With the right meaning and phrasing, I reveal the whole life that is perfectly complete and pure. For what reason? Because if they understand even a single sentence, that will lead to their welfare and peacefulness for a long time. Okay, thank you, Basum. So here we have another farming analogy where the Buddha uses these three different qualities of fields to talk about how he teaches the different groups of people. All these groups of people, the ordained practitioners, the household practitioners, and the aesthetics and Brahmin from other communities, he taught similarly with the same teachings that are good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. This basically means that he delivers the right wording and phrasing and maintains his energy and the delivery of his teachings all the way through his discourses with each individual group. But he does see a certain uniqueness about the quality of the student between these three groups. And people who have given up their household life and entered into homelessness to be ordained, he saw them as being the highest quality of student because of course, they've given up so much to be able to learn with him and attain enlightenment. So that was an action that they did that was demonstrating to him that these people are serious and they truly are interested in learning these teachings. So he viewed that as the highest quality of field that he could plant seeds and they would grow and come to fruit. Then when he talked about the household practitioners, he talked about the household practitioners as being the middling quality. Because if you can think about household life during the lifetime of the Buddha, it was much more complex than we might give them credit for. Today, think about how busy your life is. Well, if you can imagine household life during the lifetime of the Buddha, I would say that they're actually a lot busier than what we are today. If we're hungry, we go down to the store, we get some food and we eat. If people during his lifetime are hungry, they had to do all this planting, they had to do this plowing, this sowing of seeds, this irrigation, this pulling of weeds. Over the course of time, they had to gather up the harvest, they had to prepare it, they had to preserve it, they had to collect firewood, they had to develop their shelter, they had to make their clothing. There was a lot of things that they had to do just to sustain their life. Where for us, 2,500 years later, a lot of that has already been worked out. We just go to a particular job, for example, work, make money, and then all the supplies we need to live life, all we have to do is purchase them. Those things didn't exist during the lifetime of the Buddha in the quantities that we have today. So household practitioners didn't have the time and the available access to be able to dedicate to practicing the teachings in the same way that an ordained practitioner would during the lifetime of the Buddha. Nowadays, with the evolution of how we conduct our society, practitioners have the ability to carve out of their day a lot more time than what people during the lifetime of the Buddha would have been able to. So I would say, while during the lifetime of the Buddha, household practitioners did attain enlightenment, it wasn't as frequent as an ordained practitioner. 
I would say during today's time, a household practitioner, while there's still certain obstacles to overcome, they have much more ability to attain enlightenment today than a household practitioner would have during the lifetime of the Buddha because we have organized our lives in such a way that we don't have to have the extensive work just to sustain our life, that we actually can carve out large portions of our day in order to actually focus on learning and practicing the teachings. We actually have things called weekends where we're not expected to work necessarily and we can kind of spend time in our involved in our hobbies and activities. During the lifetime of the Buddha, there weren't necessarily hobbies and activities. People didn't go out for exercise or jogging or crocheting or knitting or quilting or artwork or you know racing cars or things like this. During their lifetime, it was work seven days a week. And that's what they needed in order to sustain their life. And at any time, a certain storm or weather condition or some aspect of the environment could really change their plans in terms of the amount of food they would have access to sustain their life. So he viewed the household practitioners as being this middling quality, but he still taught them the same and he still looked at them as being dedicated to him being their island, their shelter and their protector, their refuge, because it's his teachings that was able to protect the mind. But this other group of people, these aesthetics and Brahmin and wonders of other communities, these are the people from other teachers that I've mentioned that during the lifetime of the Buddha, there were other teachers that were claiming it was their teachings that led to enlightenment. And these people would kind of wander and roam from teacher to teacher to teacher. And they would sometimes come to the Buddha for teachings as well. And he still taught them the same in terms of good teachings in the beginning, middle and end. But he viewed them as kind of a less lesser quality of student and inferior quality because they weren't really dedicated to learning his teachings. And in order to help a student to attain enlightenment, as I mentioned, someone like a Buddha or an enlightened being who's teaching, they're not receiving any benefits from the actual teaching themselves. They've already attained enlightenment. They're just making themselves available to others. But to help a person attain enlightenment, it's an exhaustive amount of work and effort to help somebody along the path. A person, even a Buddha, isn't going to be interested in investing and investing and investing in someone who isn't invested in their own education, who isn't invested in their own path, their own journey. What teachers are interested in is sharing the teachings with anyone and everyone who's interested to learn and practice the path. But those students who show dedication and determination and diligence to their own growth in the path to enlightenment, a teacher is going to consider them to be a better quality student who they're willing to invest in in order to help them grow and progress along the path. And that's the way that a Buddha would teach. But even in teaching that inferior quality student, the Buddha shares here that even if they understand a single sentence of his teachings, that would be good for their welfare and peacefulness for a long time. One of the things that I can share is that here in Thailand, I used to, before COVID, teach in the temples. 
and I would be there uh, multiple times throughout the week. And there would be certain students who would come there three, four, five times a week to learn with me continuously over and over and over again. But then there would be tourists who were just kind of in and out and kind of, you know, roaming about the city and kind of in and out. And in those situations, the students who are coming regularly and reading the books and asking really detailed questions, the teacher can see these students are really dedicated to learning. And as a teacher, you're going to put a lot of investment into that student to help them grow because they're showing motivation and encouragement along the path. These students who are coming in and out and maybe sitting down in the class for 20 minutes and then leaving, you're still going to, as a teacher, answer their questions very thoroughly and very detailed to help them. Because even if they understand a single sentence, it will be beneficial for their life. Even if all they hear is the word enlightenment or discontentedness or impermanence, and they get an understanding of that in that life and they get up and they leave for some reason, then that will help them in their life to even know that there's such a thing as enlightenment or to know such a thing as the universal truth of impermanence. These things can actually help people. So this is kind of something from my life that I can share similar to what the Buddha experienced that, yeah, as a teacher, you're going to share teachings with anyone and everyone who is interested in learning. But it's those students who show the real interest in their own growth that a teacher is going to be willing to continue to invest and continue to help that student. So that's why he's referring to these three groups of people in this way. And one of the other things that I think that this teaching represents, which you can see very clearly, and you'll see it in other teachings as well, is that oftentimes when a person asks the Buddha a question, he will oftentimes ask them a question back first because they actually have the wisdom that he's about to teach them, but they have it in terms of another topic. So here, this person is questioning the Buddha, the headman, which is the leader of a village or a town. He says, you know, don't you reside compassionate towards all living beings? And the Buddha's like, sure. You know, I reside compassionate towards all living beings. And then he says, well, why is it that you teach, you know, some students one way and you teach other students another way? And then the Buddha says, well, let me ask you a question about this and answer it as you see fit. You know, so he asked them about farming. And then once the headman replies to the Buddha about the farming, the answer that the Buddha gives about his teachings is exactly similar to what this person understands about farming. That way, the student doesn't have to believe the Buddha about what he's about to share, but the knowledge already resides there in the actual student asking the question. It's just related to another topic. So this is kind of a teaching method that teachers will often use is rather than just give the student the answer, because the Buddha could have very easily done that. It's just given the answer. He instead asked the student a question, and then once they reply, then the Buddha connects his teachings to what the student already knows. And this is a way to help the student to more deeply understand the teachings rather than just give the answer. So you'll see this in different parts of the Buddha's career of teaching where he'll ask a question of the person who's asking him a question. 
in order to help them more deeply understand the teachings that he's about to deliver. Questions on this chapter? One question, teacher. Okay. So chapter 51, and I think I'm supposed to be reading this one, right, Bassam? Yeah, if you don't mind, teacher. Okay. So this is a, a longer chapter, and I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's repeating. There's some repeating things here. I'm going to kind of skip over some certain portions, but you'll see where I'm skipping. Okay. Essentially, what this chapter is getting to is the Buddha is talking about how somebody who's learned the teachings in this life and dedicated their time, effort, energy, and resources to practicing those teachings, should they not attain enlightenment in this life, and they need to be reborn, they're going to remember those teachings in their next life, and it's going to benefit them in their next life. So learning and practicing in this life, you have a good opportunity here to attain enlightenment, but should all of this work build up to the point where you actually don't attain enlightenment, your next rebirth is going to be in a better destination, and you'll still be able to recall the teachings that you learn in this life to benefit you in a future life. That's what he's essentially getting to here. Four observable benefits for one who learned the teachings by ear. Monks, when one has learned the teachings by ear, recited them verbally, examined them with the mind, and penetrated them well by view, four benefits are observed. Now remember, this isn't all the benefits that are observed. These are just some of the benefits related to what the Buddha is about to teach. There's plenty of benefits, but this is just related to the specific thing that he's looking to teach, which is related to rebirth. What for? Here, a monk masters the teachings, discourses, mixed prose and verse, expositions, verses, inspired spoken phrases, quotations, birth stories, amazing accounts, and questions and answers. He has learned those teachings by ear, recited them verbally, examined them with the mind, and penetrated them well by view. He passes away muddled in mind and is reborn into a certain group of heavenly beings. Right. So if he's muddled in mind, he's not yet enlightened, so he's going to be reborn. But this particular person's been reborn in the heavenly beings, which there's still an opportunity to attain enlightenment there as well. There, the happy ones recite passages of the teachings to him. The arising of his memory is sluggish, but then that being quickly reaches distinction. So here, this is someone who learns in this life, doesn't attain enlightenment, reborn in the heavenly realm, and people there or beings there, heavenly beings there, recite the teachings to him and his mind is kind of sluggish but he eventually kind of quickly reaches to distinction or development on the path perhaps even enlightenment and that's the benefit so this is the first benefit to be observed when one has learned the teachings by ear recited them verbally examined them with the mind and penetrated them well by view okay so that's the first thing so here again, the Buddha goes through this whole process of all the learning orally, practicing the teachings, passes away muddled in mind, and is reborn in a certain group of heavenly beings. 
There, the happy ones do not recite the passages of the teachings to him, but a monk with psychic potency who has attained mastery of mind teaches the teachings to an assembly of heavenly beings. So this is a human being, a monk that exists as a human being is teaching to the heavenly beings while this being is there, right? So he's, this person has learned in their human life. They didn't attain enlightenment. They're reborn in the heavenly realm. The heavenly beings aren't teaching, but this monk in the human realm is teaching. And now he learns as that heavenly being. It occurs to him, this is the teachings and discipline in which I formerly lived the spiritual life. So, ah, in that heavenly existence, you remember, ah, I used to practice this in a previous life. The arising of his memory is sluggish, but then that being quickly reaches distinction. Okay. The Buddha gives kind of an analogy to help you understand that. Suppose a man were skilled in the sound of a kettle drum while traveling along a highway. He might hear the sound of a kettle drum and would not be at all confused or uncertain about the sound. Rather, he would conclude that is the sound of a kettle drum. So too, a monk masters the teachings. The arising of his memory is sluggish, but then that being quickly reaches distinction. This is the second benefit to be observed when one has followed the teachings by ear, recited them such and such and such. So just like you were skilled in a certain musical instrument, if you went many, many years without hearing that instrument, but then you heard it much later in life, aha, I know exactly what instrument that is. You would know. And that's what the Buddha is explaining that you would have that same recall of the teachings from one life to the next. Now, here's the third one. Same thing, someone who practices all the teachings, he passes away muddled in mind and is reborn in a certain group of heavenly beings. So the person wasn't enlightened and reborn in the heavenly beings. There, the happy ones do not recite the passages of the teachings to him, nor does a monk with psychic potency who has attained mastery of the mind, teach the teachings to an assembly of heavenly beings. However, a young heavenly being teaches the teachings to an assembly of heavenly beings. It occurs to him, these are the teachings and discipline in which I formerly lived the spiritual life. The arising of his memory is sluggish, but then that being reaches distinction. Okay. So here is the analogy. Suppose a man were skilled in the sound of a conch. This is like a, a shell that you blow through in order to make a certain sound. While traveling along a highway, he might hear the sound of a conch and he would not be at all confused or uncertain about the sound. Rather, he would conclude this is the sound of a conch. So too, a monk masters the teachings. The arising of his mind is sluggish, but then that being quickly reaches distinction. This is the third benefit. So again, a being that learns the teachings in this life, passes away muddle-minded, not enlightened, is reborn in the heavenly realm. 
There the happy ones do not recite the passages, nor does a monk with psychic potency and mastering of the mind teach the teachings, nor does a young heavenly being teach the teachings to an assembly. However, one being who has been spontaneously reborn reminds another who has been spontaneously reborn. Do you remember, dear sir? Do you remember where we formerly lived the spiritual life? The other says, I remember, dear sir, I remember. The rising of his memory is sluggish, but then that being quickly reaches distinction. Suppose there were two friends who had played together in the mud. By chance, they would meet one another later in life. Then one friend would say to the other, do you remember this friend? Do you remember that friend? And the other would say, I remember friend, I remember. So too a monk masters the teachings, the arising of his memory is sluggish, but then that being quickly reaches distinction. So that's the fourth benefit. So then the Buddha says, these are the four benefits to be observed when one has learned the teachings by ear, recited them verbally, examine them with mind, and penetrate them well by view. So all the individual details of each one of these passages aren't necessarily important for your practice. The overall message here is that all the work that you're doing in this life, it can lead to enlightenment. But if it shouldn't lead to enlightenment and there is rebirth, you're going to benefit from having learned them in this life. That's the real takeaway from here. But all these little individual uniquenesses with each individual passage, you don't have to remember those. Just understand that all the work that you're doing now is helping you in this life. And should you need to be reborn, it's going to help you in that life too. So questions on this chapter? Yes, teacher. Uh, before going to Facebook uh, questions, let's go to Nick first. Uh, teacher, I have, a, I have a question in a, a few parts. Um, could these beings be uh, in the jhanas, a once returner or non-returner? They're in the heavenly realm, so I was just wondering what stage they would be at. You can actually. Um, oh, sorry. Um, yeah, if, if I could continue, I, I think um, the more I explain, I might tie, tie some other things in together. Okay. Um, the muddled in mind. Uh, I was. I was wondering. I mean, these are the way this is reading. They're skilled. The, these these practitioners are skilled. They they made significant progress. I was on the path. But they're still muddled in mind. Does muddled in mind mean they, well, if you're not, like you have a little bit of muddle, so is it just like a minute amount of muddleness? Muddled in mind, like when I read that, I'm like a muddled mind person, I would think is not even on the path. You know, I, I, mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe I'm just reading that as a strong word. So I was looking for clarification on that. And um, the end of the sentences of the paragraphs um, reaches distinction. Does that mean enlightenment? Okay, so I'll just take those in order. So in order to be reborn in the heavenly realm, there isn't just one way to do that, right? There's, that would be permanence if there was. We tend to think based on our previous traditions that we might have followed that there's just one way to get to heaven and that's it. But that's not true. You can progress through learning the Eightfold Path, 
move into the jhanas, attain the third stage of enlightenment as a non-returner, and be reborn into heaven, and that being will attain enlightenment in the heavenly realm for sure. But other beings can attain a rebirth in the heavenly realm too. One that is in the jhanas can be reborn in heaven, but they're not necessarily going to attain enlightenment on that birth. They're going to then be reborn throughout other realms. It's very rare for beings in the heavenly realm to attain enlightenment. So a being who's in a jhana in this life being reborn in the heavenly realm, they're most likely not going to attain enlightenment in that existence. And they're going to need to be reborn in order to experience future rebirths and get closer to enlightenment. And and because they're in the heavenly realm, they're not going to necessarily be reborn right back into the human realm. They might go from heaven down to afflicted spirits, animal, or even hell. That's all possibilities. And even someone who's not in the jhanas can actually attain a rebirth in heaven as well. And once again, that being is most likely not going to attain enlightenment in their heavenly existence, and they're going to need to be reborn throughout these other realms in order to get the opportunity to ultimately attain enlightenment again. So there's more than one way to experience a heavenly rebirth. Okay, so that's the first one. The second one, muddled in mind. Muddled in mind means lacking comprehension or lacking concentration. Here, what the Buddha is talking about at the first part of each one of these phrases is he's talking about someone who's mastered the teachings in terms of being able to remember them and understand them. But it doesn't mean they're actually practicing them. This would be someone who has done a lot of intellectual learning, but hasn't necessarily improved the condition of the mind through the actual practice. So there's beings that are like that, that they may understand the teachings very well intellectually, but their mind is still lacking comprehension or clear comprehension or uh, clarity or concentration because they are not truly practicing the teachings very deeply. So that's how somebody can learn the teachings or the word that the Buddha uses here is master the teachings, but still yet be muddled in mind, which means it's going to lead to rebirth. Okay. And then the third question you had is about reaching distinction. So this, I feel, is probably someone who reaches enlightenment. But if he meant that, I don't know why he wouldn't have just said that. It might not be that someone reaches enlightenment. That might not be what he's necessarily explaining. Because if he was meaning to say that this being is absolutely going to reach enlightenment, I think he would have said that. So reaching distinction could be that this being experiences the jhanas, experiences one of the stages of enlightenment, or it could mean that they actually attain enlightenment. So all of those things on the spectrum. So that's probably what he's teaching here is that this being accumulating the benefits of the teachings can reach distinction or in other words, attain the jhanas, one of the stages of enlightenment or enlightenment itself. Uh, but it's much easier to say it this way. That's what I would suggest that he's probably referring to. Okay, teacher, thank you very much. Um, could it be quickly reach his distinction? Or maybe a better distinction would uh, um, 
gets back on the path quickly gets back on the path well if, like that. that's all uh well if somebody is already doing all of this stuff and they're reborn they're on the path i mean even beings in hell are on the path they're just not actively on the path right they're they're in the cycle of rebirth they're just not actively pursuing it as someone who we say is on the path or actively on the path so i wouldn't necessarily say it that way nick because someone who's done all this stuff is on the path but they're just now being reborn and their benefits are going to accumulate to more results in that heavenly realm well we have a couple of questions and first one comes from chapter 43 okay uh, amina says how can we relate the teachings in chapter 43 to our everyday lives david can you share an example this one here there's nothing i feel that you can go out and practice like the universal truths the four noble truths the eightfold path things like this this is just another way that the buddha is pointing to the four noble truths as a way of helping you see that that's a really important teaching to learn and practice right so every single one of his teachings there isn't something that says okay let me go check the six sense bases or let me guard the doorways to discontentedness or right speech or right action these kind of things in this particular teaching it's just him sharing how important the four noble truths are to the path to enlightenment these teachings that you're looking at they're sometimes captured where you know he's just talking in conversation with somebody and somebody during his lifetime remembered that and that's what they actually wrote down and captured as part of the teaching so this wasn't necessarily a full-out discourse or there could have been something he was teaching before this or after this that has more application to maybe what you're doing in your life right now but this particular two paragraphs is just helping us see how important the four noble truths are in that you need to focus on that in order to attain enlightenment as one important aspect of the teachings okay uh, next question david can you share with us how can how we can relate chapter 46 to our relationship with buddhism teachers in modern times related to the relationship with buddhist teachers in modern times okay so one thing i would say is this is really the core part of this entire teaching one who sees the teaching sees me or one who sees me sees the teachings if you're learning with a teacher in modern times you should be able to get to the point where you can see the teachings within a matter of a few weeks you should be able to take their teachings look in the world and see that there's truth there you might not be understanding them fully you might not be practicing them fully of course you haven't attained enlightenment but you should see the truth in their teachings based on what they're sharing there shouldn't be any belief whatsoever in what someone's sharing with you you should be able to learn intellectually and then reflect on that look in the world and see the truth for yourself that's one the second thing is is that one who sees me sees the teachings any teacher that you learn with today 
you should be seeing them practice the teachings. So if you're learning about right speech, but you're not seeing right speech being practiced by that person, that's something that you should consider in your decision to learn with that person. So anything that a teacher is teaching, you should see them practicing as well. So if they're teaching loving kindness, compassion, generosity, all these other teachings that are shared, you should see that as part of their life practice as well. That's really important that you would like to see the qualities of enlightenment in the teacher that you're learning from because they would have had to have attained something in order to have wisdom to be able to then share with you so that you can attain those same things. So if a teacher, going back to muddle-minded, if a teacher is lacking clear comprehension or concentration or awareness of mind, and you're noticing that, then that means they haven't attained the results of the enlightened mind, and therefore their wisdom is not yet quite 100% developed to the point where what they're sharing with you would lead to the results of clear comprehension, concentration, and focus. So you should see the qualities of enlightenment in the person that you're choosing to learn from. Those are two that I could see here. The other ones are related to, you know, being close to the Buddha. So any teacher who's sharing these teachings, they should be close to the teachings of the Buddha. You should see them having proficiency in understanding and communicating the Pali Canon. If someone is sharing the teachings on this path to enlightenment, but they're not close to the teachings of the Pali Canon and understanding the teachings of the Pali Canon very well, then they haven't really done the work to go back to the words of the Buddha and then bring that into their own practice. So that means whatever they're sharing with you is going to be lacking that wisdom from the Pali Canon. So you would like to see that a teacher is very close to understanding the teachings in the Pali Canon. So those are three that I could share with you here in, in this particular one. Well, uh, these are all the questions uh, for the same teacher. So uh, many thanks for your compassion and love. Okay. Uh, I see Nick's hand is up. Is that just from the other question or is that a new question? I think this is from the previous one, but now we have Ali uh, has her hand raised. So let's go to Ali. Hi, teacher. Um, I'm just, this is not question relating to this class, but um, for the class tomorrow, where do we read? I mean, where's the reading? Where can we find the reading for it? So the group learning program, the first four weeks that we start out, it's not following the chapters in the book, like one by one, the way that we typically do. The first four weeks is an overview of the path and then we kind of start with chapter one from there and we go week by week by week. But if you would like to read something in preparation for tomorrow's class, you could read the preface of the book, chapter four, and the first part of chapter five, which is right view and right oh. intention. But don't feel like you have to hurry up and read that because I'm going to be teaching orally and giving kind of an oral survey of the path to enlightenment. And then we're going to get into chapter one in about four weeks from now. But if you would like to read something, those would be things that you could read. Oh, okay. Right. 
Thank you, though. You're welcome. All right. So next week in this class, we're going to be in volume three, which is titled Foundations in the Teachings. And we're going to be discussing chapters one through ten. So if you need to download that book, you can go ahead and download it. If you need to print it or get a copy from Amazon, you can do that. And we'll explore chapters one through 10 in volume three. And then we're going to progress through that book. We'll be in that book for a good 11 or 12 weeks. Uh, So that's about four months because there's 124 chapters in that book. It's quite a, a thick book. So we're going to be in that book quite a bit. And what you're going to see in this volume three And the reason why it's titled Foundations in the Teachings is that it's a real large variety of teachings from the very beginning of the Buddha's career of teaching all the way through to the end. So when I tend to travel or go on trips and teach, if I'm going to grab one particular book or another, I will typically grab that one and go on my trip because there's so much variety in that book that it really uh, has a lot of variety and a lot of uh, wide-ranging teachings on lots of different topics. So I think you'll really enjoy exploring that book because there's so many different topics. And then once we read that book over four months, then we'll move into volume four and volume five, and we'll continue going from there. But with that volume three, it's almost like a survey, kind of like an overview of all the teachings of the Buddha going forward into all the other volumes. Tomorrow in the group learning program, we're going to be studying just the first two steps of the Eightfold Path, right view and right intention. This is the first class of a three-part series where we're going to be breaking down the Eightfold Path into three separate classes so that we can penetrate into each individual section of the Eightfold Path very deeply. So this first class is the wisdom of the Eightfold Path, which is right view and right intention. There we're going to be discussing the three universal truths, the Four Noble Truths, which makes up right view, and then we're going to be discussing right intention. And I'm going to be bringing in words of the Buddha in order to share the teachings in that class and ensure that students have a really good understanding of that first part of the Eightfold Path. And then in the following Sunday, We're going to go into the moral conduct, right speech, right action, right livelihood. And then the following Sunday, which is the third part of the series, we're going to be in the mental discipline, which is right effort, right mindfulness and right concentration. Teaching in this way gives us a lot more time to penetrate deep into the Eightfold Path and make sure you really deeply understand it. Typically, this is taught as just one class. But by breaking it up this way, we get to penetrate much more deeply into it. So it's really great to be able to offer it in this way. And if you're able, I would encourage you to learn in that class, either live or through the replay, so that you can take in this three-part series. On Wednesday, we start the first part of a four-part series, where we're going to be teaching breathing mindfulness meditation over four classes. So the first class, I'll introduce it, go into a great amount of detail about developing your meditation practice, and then we'll actually do a short meditation session together. Then the following Wednesday, we'll go deeper into the practice and 
out of those four classes, we'll get deeper and deeper into the practice of breathing mindfulness meditation. And then we'll start with a four-part series on loving-kindness meditation and do the same thing and make sure we're really building your practice up from the very beginning and building it up so that it can be stronger and stronger and stronger and more penetrative in the mind so that you really deeply understand these teachings as we help you build up your life practice. So thank you all for joining for today's class. I'll see you either next Saturday in this class or perhaps even Sunday and Wednesday in the group learning program. Until then, have a very lovely rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.